Welcome to the Sensory Change Podcast, where we learn to think differently as a community supporting sensory kids at all levels. We share all sensory matters through discussions and interviews with experts in the field to get practical ideas and simple strategies to implement in day-to-day life. Here is your host and author of Against the Odds, Dana Latter. Today we have Robin Stewart with us. Robin is an expert on autism, an author and a mentor. Hi Robin, and I'm so happy to have you with us. Thanks very much for having me. (laughs) Pleasure. Uh, So what does it mean to live with autism? Well, that's a big question. Well, uh, firstly, I would say um, it's very kind in the introduction to call me an expert, but I would say I'm not an expert because I... And I haven't met every single autistic person and I can only be myself. Um, so I would say that living with autism, um, like for me anyway, um, it means that I um, find the social aspect of the world difficult to manage um, and I have to employ strategies to manage my sensory perceptions. Uh-huh. And what kind of sensory issues did you have growing up? Uh, well, I still have pretty much the same issues now. I think I just have more strategies. I, I actually, um, I, the, the older I get, the more conscious I am of how in school uh, you are a little bit kind of trapped. It's, you know, I mean, it is nicer than prison, obviously, but... Um, in a lot of ways, you have a lot of um, sort of liberties, I suppose you might say, taken away from you. So as an adult, I can carry a phone with me that is capable of playing music and I can pop my headphones on whenever I need to. Uh, if I'm in a meeting and I just need to take a break, that's perfectly okay. Um, with the, the kinds of work that I do, um, mostly it's fine for me to be in a meeting but also to focus on something else if I need to uh, because sometimes I find it helps me concentrate better um, which I know sort of seems like contradictory but for some reason that's what works for me so but also I I don't really sit still um, and in school you know I have to sit still and actually um, I'm so I'm a member of the core team at the welcome hub uh, for the next two years and throughout Mm -hmm. the meeting process most of them, yeah, you know, I'd spent laid on the sofa or sat on the carpet, or I don't, I didn't really sit still or sit on a chair for long periods of time because I'm just not very good at that. Um, but in school, there's, you know, you have to sit on a chair. Uh, you might get, um, you might get a yoga ball if you're lucky. Um, mm-hmm. You have to sit on a chair. You have to um, be in sense like when you're in work to to some degree. Um, you can pick a career that sort of meets your sensory needs. So, for example, Mark Tinley, um, he used to be uh, Nick Rhodes' right-hand man, Nick from uh, Duran Duran. Mm-hmm. Um, and he he is um, hypersensitive to sound. Um, and he's, he's open about it. I've, I've done podcasts and stuff with him, so I know that he, he is open about that. Um, 
but his hypersensitivity to sound, I'm not sure if that, those are the words he'd use to describe it, but essentially um, he's turned that into a career um, and he now runs a music shop in Glastonbury. Hmm. Um, so, but I think when you're in school, you know, you're under those strip lights, which aren't good for most people. Um, and you also have to deal with a lot of unpredictability and it, it's kind of, as a kid, you... Um, want you know to to try and not get bullied you try and fit in with everybody else um but then that kind of means that you can't do the stuff that you actually need to do whereas i think when you're an adult it can be easier because i think you have in some ways less social pressure from people around you because people won't necessarily bully you just because you don't conform uh -huh. and did you fit into the structure of a school no I I don't fit into almost anywhere. <laughs> I'm one of those round peg peoples. Um, yeah, I no, I um, really uh, primary school was great, um, and now you know when I think about it, I think well, the primary school I was in had quite high ceilings, and I think high ceilings are quite good for me. And I think it had big windows, and so lots of natural light, yeah. and I think that worked quite well for me. Um, but in high school, um, I really struggled, uh, and I think some of it was, you know, being a teenager is hard anyway. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, you, you don't, like I said, in school, a lot of your liberties are taken away from you, so you, you can't, um, you can't do things that help you often without a lot of ridicule or problems. Like um, yesterday in a shop, I found a laptop bag. That mm -hmm. is not only a rucksack, but it's also got wheels, and it's brilliant. And in work, nobody would ever think that weird, or like everybody would think it's cool. Like I showed other people, they're like, "Oh wow, yeah, that's cool," because mm -hmm. it gets stuff off your back. And whereas in school, I used to have a bag like that, although it wasn't a laptop bag. I didn't have a laptop compartment, but I had a bag of wheels, and kids bullied me because it was different. Mm. Um, so. Yeah, so I mean, most of my high school years, I uh, was bullied, and um, I didn't get good grades in anything, and I genuinely thought it was because I was thick, and that I would never be able to do anything in life, just because I, now, I can see that, well, my mind just doesn't work like that. Um, so I think that if people force me to conform in the way that school did, and whereas my work at the Welcome doesn't, if people forced me to conform, I'd never get anything done. I would just not be able to function. I actually need a little bit of flexibility. I, I need to. I need people to just. If I'm not hurting anybody and I'm not hurting myself, it just leave me to get on with it. <laughs> uh, don't like breathe down my neck. Like I mean, don't breathe down my neck, but don't. Uh, I generally am much better at managing tasks on my own without loads of input from other people um and so yeah so i just think in school it's all about you know exams and essentially you have to jump through a bunch of hoops that's what you have to do in life exactly. and i've learned that um, but uh yeah i mean any, any kind of everyday things i really struggle with and i did really genuinely think it was just because i was thick and it wasn't until i was 26 when i realized oh i'm not thick i just think differently and what made <laughs> me realize that was because in 10 days in June 2012, they weren't consecutive days, but I mean, I think there's 30 days in June, so 10 of those days in 2012, I spent writing the first 
50,000, sort of 45 to 50,000 words of um, my first book. Oh. And I realized that I'd done loads of research for it, yeah. and I just realized that all of that stuff was saved in my head, like in this, like, um, book folder in my brain and then all I was just doing was downloading all that information but the other thing I had to do was not look at the words on the screen I found I just needed to type and I would look at my fingers um, and type with uh, I only really type with um, two fingers um, uh -huh. I think the uh, fingers next to my thumb, so I don't know what they're called, but whatever they're <laughs> called, those are the two that I used. Um, but people would just leave, I think maybe sometimes I use my thumb for the space bar, but uh, people just kind of let me get on with it because the because my publisher valued my work. They knew that I was getting on with it and that I had a process and we talked about that, but they trusted me and left me alone to get on with it. And then also they could look through the fact that I can't do spelling and grammar because they could see that, you know, there aren't many people that can write like I write. I mean, I'm not the first person to do it, obviously. But, you know, if, if you look at the whole population of of the UK and you look at how many people have written books like like that and think in that way, now, there's probably not that many. Yeah, not uh, many at all. <laughs> not, not that I'm saying that that... Uh, not that I'm not trying to say I'm better than anybody else or anything like that. I, I just mean that when I was in school... Because I didn't think like everybody else, the school requires you to jump through these hoops and to jump through the hoop you have to think like everybody else. And if you don't or can't think like everybody else, then you're not going to jump through the hoop and therefore you're going to fail in school and people will tell you that you failed. And there's lots of other people like me who also think differently and they have their own um, difference to me and you know, they're different. and. And they can also make success in life, but they couldn't have success in school because they weren't thinking in the, the way that the school wanted you to think. Or the, It's not so much the school. I think it's more of a government thing. And I was on the... I was on the... Um, on the, um, on the um, uh, National Autism Programme Board. And what I found was that, basically, civil servants, many of them are nice and they care, but they're basically um, kind of, I don't know how to word this in a more um, appropriate way, but they're kind of like puppets to the um, ministers. And the ministers, you know, like the minister changes around as often as some people change their socks. <laughs> yeah. um, and the minister doesn't necessarily know anything about the area that they've not necessarily like been a doctor and worked on. Um, you know, a ward or A&E and then their health minister like the minister could have no experience on the front line of supporting people like yes, if true. they're doing autism policy so I felt like the system was completely flawed because it would be like that in education as well I mean yeah they do pay for consultants and stuff like that but it's not the same as having it, it needs to be led I think from top down from <laughs> experienced people and I, uh, so I think that there are loads of people that, you know, the school system teaches them mm -hmm. and some demoralizes them because they can't think in the way that the ministers think you should. But bear in mind also that um, that a high proportion of MPs were taught, and MPs obviously, you know, some of them are ministers, and you can't really be a minister without being an MP, I don't think, um, <laughs> that they have been educated in private schools and um, and therefore they've 
you know, they've they've had a certain upbringing and they're used to a certain amount of money around them and they've got no idea what it would be like to live off, you know, 12 grand a year. Yeah, a lot of problems I see in schools, uh, especially from my experience with my sons, were well, that teacher assistants weren't really qualified to deal with sensory processing or autism. Yeah, um, I think that because TAs and learning support assistants, because they're training, I think, you know, it's often, because because they're supporting a wide range of needs, their training is often quite general. Um, And I think with with SPD, um, you, you have to understand how your sensory system works and they often just don't have that opportunity to have that education. Um, and also I think because there's um, there's a lot of kind of conflicting information, I, I think there are a few tools that work really well regardless of what your um, school of thought is within the sensory world. Um, so I think that sensory profiles are a really great tool. I know the AET has some on their website. Also, Olga Bagdashina's books, um, the sensory processing one um, has a sensory profile at the back. Um, and also Autism West Midlands for a while. I don't know if they still do it, but they had a little, um, like a, well, almost like a pamphlet. It was A5, um, but it was ring-bound, and it was a, basically uh, a sensory um, profile kit. But I think that's useful. I also think doing a sensory audit um, is you know useful regardless of what school of thought you are and i think also um you know talking about vestibular and proprioception yeah. and in- introception and uh when i go and do training most people have, haven't heard of those senses and so having to explain them and i'm not even really sure i'm the best person to be explaining that really um because uh, it's not particularly my specialism and really i'm doing it because i just think they should know about it uh-huh. And you did mention your struggle with food, right? Um, not greatly. I mean, my parents, basically I have to be conscious of textures. Um, and uh, my parents found that I didn't like baby food, but I was quite happy to eat their food if my mum washed it up in the food processor. Um, I just, yeah, so first thing in the morning... Um, seem, my sensory system seems to be more sensitive than it is at other times of the day and I have to have my wheat bix a certain way um, and uh, if I don't have it like that then it makes me gag mm-hmm. um, and that's not something that I'm in control of I can't I don't think I can think my way out of that it just for some reason I have that reflex it's not, I mean, as an adult, it's not, again, you know, it's not a major problem because I, I am able to think about it in a lateral way and know, right, okay, I have to have this certain way to get through my day without it causing me a problem. I'm sure that if I really worked on it, maybe I could get over that, but it kind of isn't a big deal because I either have Weetabix or I have toast. I mean, <laughs> most, most places in the world have some version of toast, so even when I'm travelling... Most people have heard of toast. Exactly. And uh, now I'd like to speak about your new book. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's called The Autism-Friendly Guide to Periods. Ah. So could you tell us a bit about it? 
Yeah, um, so I wanted to write a book that was very different to other books about periods. Um, and obviously periods have a sensory aspect to them. Um, so I looked at the books that were already out there and I read, as well as some of the positive reviews for books, I also made sure I read all the negative reviews of books because I wanted to understand what it was that parents didn't want from a book because ultimately it's the parent buying the book for the child. Um, and I know that from talking to um, parents, well, not so much parents, but certainly talking to schools, uh, periods is something that parents seem to struggle educating their kids with. They of feel course. maybe uncomfortable about it. Um, and I think what the problem is, and th this is something I learned from the kids, was one of the kids said to me, in year five, we learned about periods and sex at the same time. And we really <laughs> just wanted to know about periods. But we had to learn about, we learned more about sex at the time. And <sighs> that wasn't what was happening to us. We, you know, we knew that we were going to have periods. We wanted to know about it. So yeah. I think um, what happens is that people teach reproduction within the biology curriculum and within that is is how women get pregnant and that somehow gets mixed in with periods and i don't think it has to be like that um so in the book i only mentioned sex twice um so the, the first time um is a small comment uh, on the page about tampons because um, just to explain, there's a culture box within that page, and, and it just explains that within some cultures, um, using a tampon is seen as losing your virginity, even though you're not having sex. So we just mm -hmm. made that clear because of the. But I don't think that that's going to encourage people to run out and want to have sex. Like, <laughs> unless you know what sex is, it's not really giving you any idea about it. And the second time, um, it doesn't actually mention the word sex, but it just says. Uh, in the section that has more detail about periods <laughs> for week one it says um, it, so long as you're not pregnant and in brackets it says check with a trusted adult that you really understand what this means close brackets <laughs> so then parents can address what they wish um, because um, my medical advisor for the book Dr Carol Buckley she said that sometimes young girls um, they worry even though they haven't had sex they worry that they're pregnant and that's why they haven't had a period that month Mm. Um, and there's actually loads of other reasons that are completely innocent, have nothing to do yeah. with sex, that um, you might not have a period for. So that's, a, yeah, so how, there's no... So how um, do you explain to a girl that she's about to have a period? Well, um, the first thing I did was, n was not gender it, um, because um, not all autistic people identify with the binary way of looking at gender and actually that's true of the general population there's pl plenty of non-autistic people who identify as say non-binary or gender queer or like there's, there's actually about 30 different uh, genders wow. um so that's the third thing like so that none of this nonsense about becoming a woman <laughs> um mm. because also um women don't all have periods um like when you go through the menopause it doesn't mean you're not a woman anymore it just means you don't have periods mm -hmm. um so um so this is kind of ridiculous and, and i explain that you know that well there are women who don't have periods there are women who don't have wounds like i mean it doesn't make anyone less of a woman so that's the first thing the second thing is to explain that um 
your body uh, is to, to a large extent controlled by chemical messengers um, and they are called hormones and they are very small. Well, actually, I guess you could say technically a neurotransmitter is a chemical messenger, but I think I explain it much better in the book. <laughs> but, <laughs> but basically, um, your body is controlled by hormones and hormones are really tiny. You can't see them. So you can't even... Yeah, you, you're not going to be able to see hormones. But um, in somebody that has a womb and ovaries and um, a vagina and fallopian tubes, um, your um, the person's ovaries and their pituitary gland, which is in, uh, in their brain, um, releases hormones which make the body go through a pattern of things. Um, and another name for pattern in this context is cycle, not like bicycles, but mm -hmm. like... Um, day and night that's a cycle that it's daytime then it's nighttime then it's daytime then it's nighttime and so on so um it's it's a cycle because it just goes round and round and round um so uh somebody that has a womb fallopian tubes a vagina and ovaries um and a pituitary gland although i don't think that it would be possible to, and i guess maybe there are a small number of people that don't have a pituitary gland but i imagine that's very small but anyway basically you go through this thing called the menstrual cycle and you haven't really got a choice about it it's just one of those things that you kind of have to get on with um and the menstrual cycle has four stages um and one of the stages, the first one, is what people describe as having a period. And what that basically means is that through your vagina, and I explained early on in the book that we have three holes um, in our private area. Um, so we have an anus for poo and a urethra for wee. And then we have a vagina. And what comes out of the vagina is blood and womb lining and it doesn't mean that you're hurt like having a period is not about being hurt it's just a process that your body goes through just like with digestions just a process um and that your body will be able to replace that blood it's supposed to happen just like saliva in your mouth um when you spit or when you chew um you uh you get rid of some of the saliva that you've made and your body makes more so um, basically, your blood and wound lining will come out, um, and how often a period happens is normally between every four and six weeks, and you'll have periods until something, generally, until something called the menopause. Um, obviously, as you grow older, you can learn that there are other reasons, but um, to try and give people a sense that they're not forever... Um, and the menopause is normally starts around the age of, and this is off the, off the top of my head, 45 <laughs> to 55, roughly. Yeah. But, you know, everybody is different. Uh -huh. um, but until then, um, you'll have periods and the blood and wound lining will come out. And sometimes it hurts, but not for everybody, because um, muscles squeeze your womb to get the wound lining out and, um, and the remaining blood out. Um, before the wound lining starts building up again. Wow, that's fascinating. And how can people purchase your book? Um, well, you can go to www.jkp.com and you can also have a look at um, autismfriendlyperiods.com um, or .co.uk. Um, and, yeah, I, I wasn't that keen on writing a book about periods, but honestly, I found it fascinating. I learn... Um, 
so much. And what I found was that the big, one of the biggest barriers for autistic people was the sensory issues. And what exactly. a lot of autistic people told me was that they use things like menstrual cloths and menstrual cups um, and uh, period underwear, um, that those things make a massive difference to them. Um, and all of those things are, are quite readily available. Um, and so in the book it talks about, you know, where you can get, get those things. That's also on the website. Um, and there's information about folding menstrual cups. And, yeah, there's just um, – I just I found that aspect of it really interesting because I – you know, the biology, I mean, I kind of, my mum was a biology teacher, so mm. I grew up knowing that stuff, and I'm <laughs> not very interested in it. I mean, yeah, it's in, my mum is fascinated by it, because she says it's amazing how, you know, a grown human can grow um, a baby in their tummy, and that is amazing, but it's not, I'm not that bothered. <laughs> like, but I did find the idea of, helping other autistic people to have a better experience of periods because you have, obviously as somebody that has periods you have them quite regularly and so being able to just yeah. do something that would make people's life better that that really appealed to me yeah especially i hear stories about you know girls who don't go to the toilet the whole day in school and you know shy to tell the teacher or shy to go out or yeah well with a menstrual cup you don't really have to go to the loo in school um, if you don't want to, um, because you can, some of them you can wear up till 12 hours. Mm -hmm. Um, but also, um, things like period underwear, like, I mean, anybody could wear period underwear. It doesn't make any extra noise. And because there are a lot of kids on the spectrum who won't use the toilet in school. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, and they don't want to use a disabled loo because they feel they might feel they don't have a disability or they might feel it's stigmatizing. Um, yeah, so, but yeah, the, I mean, there are now lots of ways of helping that. So like period underwear, menstrual cups, I'd say those are the two main ones, but also cloth pads are really good because you can make those with the choice of, you know, your ideal choice of fabrics. You can just make them at home or you can um, use a website like Etsy to find a maker and you can just email them and there's this whole community of people who, they that's what they do. They, they sew cloth pads and they really enjoy it um i'm a member of several groups on facebook and um I, I joined out of curiosity really but i found it fascinating to see the designs and patterns and um there's one lady i've seen post up recently she's been making ones in the shape of fish and oh. i just think that's so lovely <laughs> they, they look really cool so and you can have cartoon characters on them and because i think that um I think periods could feel like a really grown-up topic, and I think that a parent and a child could both feel that way about it. Because as a parent, because periods start, on average, you know, like, well, they, yeah. they start between age 8 and 16, and on average, sort of 11, 12, I think, yeah. is the average. Um, so if you are preparing an 8-year-old kid for periods, that, that could, I can imagine that as an adult parent, that that might seem a bit grown-up because um, because I think that uh, even though I think we often don't acknowledge it, I think um, we know that once you start having periods, in theory, you could get pregnant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think when people learn about it, all that stuff gets 
mixed up, but there's a great, um, the NSPCC um, have a fantastic resource called PANTS, uh, which is spelled P-A-N-T-S. And it's about, um, there's this great cartoon character called Pantasaurus, and it's just basically the message is to keep your privates private. Um, and I just think, well, you know, that would help any kid, and it has nothing to do with periods or anything like that. I think that any child has got to grow up and know, you know, they own their body, and they should be able to choose what happens to it or what doesn't happen to it. And I think that's, you know, and that's because, unfortunately, we live in a world where, you know, unfortunately, there are some abusive people, and you could meet an abusive person at any age. It doesn't have to happen when you're a child. Um, but having um, a clear message like that, I think, can really help. And, um, yeah, so I guess things like that made me feel really passionate about educating people about periods because I could see, oh, well, all these books, <laughs> all the books I looked at pretty much were all girly. They didn't have photos. They didn't have... I didn't feel like they had really clear step-by-step step every single step of the way, changing a pad and inserting a tampon. And I hadn't seen anywhere that explained um, the on a, on the back of, of um, a tampon packet, there's um there's a cross-section of um, the female reproductive system, um, and nowhere does it explain how to understand how that cross-section even happens. Exactly. Um, so I did one of the pages dedicated to show, well, this is the front, this is the side, and then this is what's called a cross-section, which just means that you show the inside of the half. Nice. And can you repeat the name of the website that you mentioned for APANTS? There's JKP, um, J for Jaguar, K for Kilo, P for Papa, dot com. Mm -hmm. That's my publisher's website, Jessica Kingsley Publishers. Mm -hmm. And then um, there's AutismFriendlyPeriods, dot com. There is Autism Periods, P-E-R-I-O. Uh, ODS periods, uh, yeah, autismfriendlyperiods.com. Okay, and one last question about the sensory input mm -hmm. is you mentioned that you love the underground. Yes. <laughs> Which for me seemed a bit odd because a lot of people on the sensory spectrum would be afraid to go on the tube or afraid to be in a busy train station. Well, um, I have a pair of um, noise-cancelling headphones, and I listen to music. Um, but also, I tend to avoid um, going early in the morning um, or uh, rush hour in the evening. It's really, I don't know why they call it rush hour. It's more like rush three hours. <laughs> That's the same in the morning, but so I avoid that. Um, I think also that I'm very selective about kind of where I get on and things like that. So, for example, I live in south-west London and I'll get the bus to Vauxhall rather than getting the train, even though the train is quicker, but the train tends to be packed and also I find the train stressful because I don't really know why south-western does this, but sometimes they'll have four carriages, sometimes it's eight carriages, sometimes it's ten carriages, and I find the lack of regulation, like, really, that just frozen because then the train stops at different points in the platform and I find that stressful 
Um, and it's there, I feel it's very unpredictable. Um, so I take the bus because the bus is predictable because they're all red in, in London. Um, and because you could track where the bus is and you, you kind of know, you know, what the bus is going to be like. Um, and then I get off at Vauxhall. Um, and I might let a train go by and walk up to the end of the platform. And I haven't quite worked out which end is better. It does seem to vary a bit. Um, but I just wait until I can get a seat. But sometimes I might have to ask. Um, I don't like it when the platform is so packed you can't move. But exactly. I tend to manage avoiding those things. Like, I, like yeah, I mean, I don't like people too close to me. Um, but in general... Um, with a bit of sort of local knowledge, you can avoid those things. Um, what I like about the tube is, um, well, I like the Victoria Line because it's fast, and I love the independence of being able to go places. I, I grew up in Suffolk, which mm -hmm. um, they rural, and I couldn't go anywhere by myself. I had no, like, because my parents would have to go with me everywhere because I couldn't drive, so they okay. had to drive. And, and I absolutely hated it because... I just felt I'm somebody that sometimes I just need some time to myself and uh, sometimes I just need to invent a reason to go to the shop to just get to just have an outing and then come back but I really sometimes I just want to be by myself I just want to be independent and not have to rely on anyone else or fit into anyone else's timetable and so for me the tube and the bus and the train represent that independence and okay. it makes me feel happy even though i've lived in london for 10 years now mm -hmm. i still um really relish the fact that i can be independent i could just after we've had this skype call i could just get up and i could go somewhere i could go anywhere in london i wanted to go i mean i could go out of london but i i actually i don't i mean i, I have to leave london for work i don't mind that but i actually don't like leaving london for non-work reasons unless i'm like going to another country or something because when I'm here, I just feel like I'm really free and I can go anywhere I want to go, but I can also go home. <laughs> so when I've had enough, I can just go home and I can just... Um, I have um, a support bat called Henry. He's not an alive bat, he's a cuddly bat. Uh -huh. um, he's made by this um, company called Oles, which is spelled O for orange, L for lima, I for uh, igloo, and Z for zebra, uh -huh. um, and they come from Denmark. I think if you Google Oles Denmark, you'll find them. And they make um, sensory animals for children and adults with special needs. And mm -hmm. Henry has lots of different textures. His legs are sort of twiddly, and he has lovely fur. Well, it's not actually fur, I don't think. I'd hope it wasn't fur. <laughs> but he has this nice texture on his back. And he's got beans, and then his front's got a different texture in his eyes and his ears. Um, and Henry, uh, he stay, he comes with me when I stay overnight somewhere, and he might come out with me if I'm really stressed. But generally, Henry stays at home, and so when I come home, Henry's here waiting for me. Oh, it's wonderful to know about this company. A way to help kids regulate themselves. Yeah, they're really cool. Um, Henry has a couple of. I don't know if. Henry was a prototype, and I loved Henry so much that they kindly sent him to me. Um, but Henry's got some friends who were also little and portable. Uh, Henry has a travel bag, so sometimes he can go out with me, but I worry that I'm going to lose him because my executive functioning isn't great. But um, 
that Henry does have some uh, friends. So there's, um, I think there's a whale and a fish and a seahorse, and they come together as a pack. And although they're quite expensive, they're really well made, and they're, yeah, I mean, they're portable, and they're very cuddly, and they're very sweet, and they're well made. Well, I'll definitely check out the company. And now, what are the three things you'd say helped you best during the years to regulate yourself? Well, I think having control, I think, like, being able to take myself off, like, I um, I have had a, I have shared a flat a few times and found actually that I actually can't cope with that the anxiety of it of people coming and going and that's unpredictable but also I think sometimes I just need to be left by myself I just need some space so I mean that, that being able to have the control to being able to manage that is really important um, to me. Um, I think also the noise cancelling headphones, they're wireless, they're really good. But before that, I had some wired ones that weren't noise cancelling, but you could still listen to music. So, I mean, that was fine. Um, my musician earplugs, I mean, they're pretty essential. Um, and I, I think also, um, I think that my parents brought me up to be flexible. Um, I think that as an autistic person, I'm probably kind of hardwired to be a bit rigid in the way that I think about things. Um, and that, I'm not saying everybody um, is wired in that way. I'm just saying I'm wired in that mm-hmm. way. But my parents taught me to be flexible. And now as an adult, I deliberately um, practice my flexibility. So, for example, it would be really easy to always have the same thing when I go to um, my local um, Indian restaurant. <laughs> but I try from time to time how to have different things, even though I find that stressful. I still do it because I know that I have to learn and practice being flexible because it's not something that comes naturally to me. And being flexible helps you to problem solve so that because I, I don't feel I mean, other people have different ways of thinking about this and I'm certainly not trying to say that my way is the right way or anything but um, for me I feel like the last thing I'm going to do in a, if a sensory environment is not right for me is ask people to change it uh, so um, as, as a child how did they help you being flexible oh just little things like not always giving me the same cup um, mm-hmm. not always driving the same route to school um, not always go, not always parking in the same place. Um, mm-hmm. not always doing the same things. Um, just very little everyday things that they worked on. Um, just, just worked it into everyday life so that I, cause it would be easy to give me the same thing for dinner every single Friday and to give me the same thing every Saturday and every Sunday. And it's kind of convenient and easy, but they deliberately were like, well, you know, whatever the choice is, that that's what the choice is. And if your favorite thing isn't on that choice, well then it's not, that's not a, not an available choice currently. Um, and since they were the ones cooking the food, <laughs> yeah, I didn't have much say in it. But that was good because because I I learned to be flexible and to deal with anxiety of oh well you know like we're not parked in the same place but it's okay or we're not going to school the same way but 
it's okay. Nothing, you know, my leg won't fall off. Whereas if you're not exposed to those things, you might presume that the world is going to end because you haven't gone the same way because it's never happened before. It doesn't happen regularly. Of course. <laughs> Mothers always know the best. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, my parents really put a lot of effort into that. And so as a consequence, I, you know, I can sort of improvise a lot like if I'm in a situation that's too loud I can put my earplugs in or um, I can put my headphones on or if the batteries run out I can still put the headphones on anyway um, and uh, or just little things I think um, I think that I think for probably a lot of autistic people not all but a lot um, that sometimes anxiety can exacerbate sensory issues exactly. like if you're already hypersensitive to sound if you're anxious you're probably going to be more hypersensitive because um because your threshold is lower because your brain is taking up a lot of its energy on being anxious so within my everyday life i try and put in ways of dealing with anxiety um so that it's not so um you know to try and keep me calm so what would you do to try and keep yourself calm Uh, just things like um, by my front door, I've, I've got a sort of system and I've got a shoe bench uh, and it has a shelf, except I don't use it in the way it's supposed to be used. I use the shelf for these um, uh, like fold up boxes and there's three of them and the shoes go underneath and then there's like, three boxes. And then on the top of the bench where you'd sit down, there's... Um, a box for post and then there's what I call my going out box and my going out box has the essential things I will need to go out like my door keys mm -hmm. uh, so that way I don't just put my door keys down anywhere that is where they go and they have to either be on my jeans um, and I have them on my jeans so they make a noise or they have to be in the going out box that's the only two places where they're allowed to be they can't be anywhere else they're not allowed that, that's a rule Um, because that way I know that they're there and I'll be able to find them. Um, if I emptied my jeans, um, I'd take my wallet out, that would go in the going out box. My sunglasses sit in the going out box. Um, uh, so all the stuff that I would need to exit the house. Uh, and I also have a, a little routine um, where I pat my right pocket and then my left pocket and I sort of tug at my keys um, just as I go out so that I can check I've got my phone, wallet and keys because if I've got those <laughs> things then, I'm, then I'll manage exactly Robin, thank you so much for Welcome. having this wonderful talk with us and if people want to find your website it's www.robinstewart.com And let me spell Robin and Stuart for you because they are spelt differently to how you might think they might be spelt. So Robin is R-O-B-Y-N and then Stuart is S-T-E-W-A-R-D. So there's no T in Stuart. Okay, so thank you very much. Thank you. And speak soon. Yep. Thanks very much. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Sensory Change podcast. If you liked what you heard, please leave a review and don't forget to subscribe. 
For more information on sensory input and ideas, visit danalatta.com. Join our community this month to get a free seven-day online course packed with practical sensory activities and strategies.